0: Hey, Scuttlebutt listeners, thank you again so much for joining us. Um, I, of of course, am Vic. I'm here with Nancy. Hi, everyone. And uh, we have a very um, cool guest. I don't know if cool seems a little colloquial, but we are so excited uh, to be welcoming to the show uh, Amy Forsythe, who is the author of the book um, Heroes Live Here. Um, A wonderful sort of collection of the history of Camp Pendleton um, and and not just its um, importance and significance to the Marine Corps, but to the surrounding community and quite frankly to the United States um, in, in general. So Amy, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Well, thank you for hosting me. I It's a pleasure to be with you today. Really, truly um, wonderful to tell the stories written by Marines for Marines and uh, love to share more of that with you.
0: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to diving into it. I mean, just on its surface, I mean, even just looking at the cover of the book there behind you, I mean, the the, the visuals are just absolutely stunning. And it's definitely something that Me having grown up in the area and then having served at Camp Pendleton, you just sort of take for granted that like, oh man, it's zero dark stupid. and we're going out to the field. But the things that you see out there, I mean, it's just absolutely gorgeous Um, and it's every realtor's dream if the Marine Corps ever leave. Um, And so thank you for sharing your vision uh, and your narrative. And like you said, you've had um, there's uh, stuff in there written four Marines by Marines. One of them, Sergeant Major LeHue, who's a friend of the show um, who we actually just had in studio uh, last week. Um, So really great book. I can't wait to dive into it. Um, And you uh, are coming to us from the the Camp Pendleton area. Is that correct?
1: That's right. I uh, live and work around on Camp Pendleton and I live uh, just east of there in Fallbrook. But It's where I was stationed uh, for many years, on and off. I deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan from Camp Pendleton, stepped off from the grinder down there at Camp Del Mar. It's just been home to many um, life enriching experiences and uh, my time serving as an enlisted combat correspondent many years. I've uh, been to every training range. I know every nook and cranny of the base. And so it's really been my my home base for many years and I, it's my second home away from home. Even though I was born and raised in Northern California in Sonoma County in a, a town called Santa Rosa, but I was really drawn to join the Marines because my grandfather served in the Marines as an AM tracker. And uh, he, he himself went through some training in the early days when Camp Pelton first stood up. Uh, 1942 is when it was uh, officially dedicated as a base. And uh, just
0: yeah, yes, I yes. Love it.
1: <laughs> loved hearing those stories. Yeah.
2: So, so here's why I'm excited to have you on the show today, Amy, because okay, Vic, you're a Marine, I'm a journalist, Amy you're a Marine and a journalist. So I I feel like we've achieved some kind of uh, journalism nirvana here for me. So can can you tell us a little bit about, about your career as a Marine journalist?
1: Well, thank you. You know, I was really drawn to the Marines. I lived near San Francisco with the backdrop of that. And back then in the 80s and the early 90s, it was just such a military town. So those fleet weeks and then Blue Angels would come to San Francisco and my parents would take me down there. And that's what really sparked the interest in service. And uh, my grandfather was a Marine. Leatherneck Magazine would come to the house. I'd read it yeah. and I got so inspired and uh, wanted to join. And so I joined the Marines. Um, out of high school more or less. I I waited a a year or two so I my parents wanted me to try to go to college first, but uh, I really was just drawn to the Marines and I thought what can I do to be of service? I wasn't interested necessarily in, you know, medical or admin or logistics, but I always loved photography and I was on the yearbook staff in high school, so I thought what job can I do and the recruiters really hooked me up, I'll say, uh, with a guaranteed spot to be a combat correspondent is what they called it back then. And then I went through the pipeline training at the Defense Information School. Back then it was at Fort Benjamin Harrison in Indiana. Now it's moved since then to Fort Meade, Maryland, but uh, I got, got my initial training through there and it rivals any journalism school. I really got the basic foundations of journalism, whether it was print, photography, videography, radio, just did a phenomenal job to set me up for success for a later career in the Marines. And then once I left the Marines of active duty, I worked in journalism as a reporter, and so I feel very fortunate that I had the skills to be a a one man band, my own crew. I could go out and shoot and produce and edit any story uh, on deadline with good quality. So I feel very lucky and fortunate and that's just evolved since then.
0: these are all my favorite buzzwords (laughs) (laughs) well i mean having served on recruiting duty the fact that you're able to guarantee get any guarantee that wasn't infantry is actually a story in and of itself i could probably do an entire episode on that alone i
1: was very lucky and grateful once i got to boot camp because those spots are very uh limited they're very scarce and so you have to take a typing test back then you had to take an english diagnostic test And so once I got through boot camp, the drill instructors were like, what are you doing? We don't see that very often. And so I was very fortunate and really just wanted to share the courage it takes to be a Marine. I wanted to tell those stories. And, um, you know, the Marines that I work for had trusted me to tell that story and not only trusted me, but expected me to and and really Forced me to be on deadline and get the story, and um, really appreciate those senior enlisted leaders who shaped me, and then the, the PAOs, the public affairs officers, who demanded stories on time, on deadline, that were were good quality, and to help media escort media out to the front lines and connect troops and develop a storyline that the media might like, and then. Work in community relations and do outreach and um really be a host for when groups wanted to come to the base and tell those stories. So it was just a really good mix throughout those years of uh, storytelling.
2: So, and of all those years of of storytelling and telling marine stories, are there things that stories that really stick have stuck with you, things that really had a lasting impact that, you know, that you would share with us today?
1: Well, you know, through the years, I've done so many stories, it tends to blur together, but literally hundreds, thousands of stories, talking to Marines, taking photos. But the theme amongst all of them is really just pulling out the nugget of courage, just sharing the courage it takes to wear a uniform, to kid up and step off into a combat zone or to the unknown or go on deployment. Um, really finding that courage and every Marine has it. There's every person that serves in uniform has the courage, has what it takes to um, serve our country. And so finding what drives them or what was their attraction? How did they find themselves on the yellow footprints and then continue to serve? And people can relate to that. And amongst all the, the new weapons, the new technology, the uh, the gear, the, the, the deployments and the locations, you know, all that aside, it's the individual Marine. And back when um, General Krulak was the Commandant back in the 90s, and he said the individual Marine makes the best spokesperson. We don't want to hear from the colonels and the senior enlisted. We want to hear from the Marine themselves because they'll always shine, they'll always be, you know, tell you what's on their mind and share from their heart about what drove them to join and uh, at the heart of everything is really just uh, the service itself and the legacy protecting and preserving the legacy of those brains that went before us.
0: Yeah, that makes me think of uh, that sort of colloquial. uh, Well, with all due respect, sir. And then you get, you know, the least respectful thing that a Marine could say or the <laughs> go ahead and speak freely. Like, oh, watch yourself now. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Marines will always tell you on their, what's on their mind if you let them, um, which is why we love them, right? Um, so what and so what was that like then um coming from a mer, uh, marine family then when you said hey I'm I'm you know I'm raising I'm raising my right hand I'm going to join up was were they pretty happy about it or was your grandfather like oh here we go <laughs> or like how, how would that go down <laughs>
1: They were a little concerned, and my grandmother was actually an Army nurse, so she, uh, they were oh, stationed, wow. yeah, they they both served, and they, uh, during the war, they were in uh, the Pacific Island, so, uh, in Guam and Saipan, at the heaviest fighting, and so, wow, that's wow. where they met, and when the war was over, they came home and got married, but, uh, you know, when they say, it's not your daddy's, your granddaddy's Marine Corps, it surely wasn't, but, they were just so proud and beaming with pride that I would follow really in their footsteps and serve. And when I graduated boot camp, they were thrilled that I made it through and uh, just always supportive. And so just carrying on that legacy that they had, and I really was the only one of our big family who decided to serve. And so they felt very um, proud and a connection with me because of all the many, many grandkids. I was the one that picked up on that and wanted to serve. And so. Um, I love their stories of service, and they they started going to reunions with the Amtrackers, and then, you know, the the nurses that my grandmother served with, and so just watching them reconnect after many years of not having any connection with those people that they served. How could you go thirty years and not talk to the people that you served with? But that was, that was the case. Everyone went their separate ways, and there was just. No way to reach people, and so uh, I loved that and they were proud of me and just lived to see me go through deployments through Afghanistan and Iraq. And so that made me um, very proud that they could at least see that I had made it through and survived, you know, really just um, go on to tell the stories. They would send clippings of newspaper articles from, you know, wherever or see stuff that I'd written and, and that was
0: just, you know, a source of pride for them. Oh,
2: cool. What a great
0: legacy too Yeah, I mean speaking of legacy like did the did that legacy dawn on you while you were in uniform? you, you mentioned you know being at the grinder at, at uh, camp Del Mar I mean Amtrak Heaven right and so like it, d- did that really seep in then or was it once you sort of um were a little more removed from it then you look back and go, like, oh my gosh.
1: Well, actually, while I was on active duty, and this was in the 90s, they had dedicated the Amtrak Museum down there at Camp Pendleton, and my grandfather was a catalyst for that. So I actually, they came down for a ceremony, and I I uh, got um them to get an actual ride in an Amtrak. Like back in the day, I could coordinate this stuff. So my family, along with some other families um, that were a part of that, were able to go out into the boat basin at Camp Del Mar. And so they were just just couldn't imagine you know how meaningful that was for them and i was still on active duty and being able to coordinate now we could never do that in today's marine corps with getting you know some senior citizens on board an amtrak in camp del mar just wouldn't happen but back then in the 90s i was able to um, arrange that and the marines you know really proud to show the legacy especially for former amtrakers and uh just relive that legacy for them and And help them kind of be appreciative of um the generation that went before so connecting those multi-generations of legacy really helps marines realize that it's not a new didn't just end up here by chance there were many people that served and sacrificed and um put that in motion for them to experience so that was great that was just one example of how they were able to kind of see me i was in uniform we were coordinating and they just were thrilled to be able to uh reconnect and brought back memories for
0: them i'm sure sure that amtrak museum that's it's something special we used to um you know do our officer calls and staff calls and stuff there and it's just great to be around all that legacy and i do need to backtrack because i probably lost half of our listenership when i said that camp delmar is amtrak or heaven it's not uh you know we do talk facts so i do you know, I will say I'm not going to backtrack on that part of it, but I will give a nod out to our brothers out at Courthouse Bay, Camp Lejeune. But I mean, let's be honest, Camp Del Mar is Amtrak heaven, so I stick by that. Um,
2: <laughs> so, miracle,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I was gonna I was gonna wave off, but you know what? F it, man. Like <laughs> we talk facts. You're on the host. Show. You're the yeah, host. That's you right.
2: get to decide.
0: So, Amy, this is—I um, really uh, want to dive into your book now because as we um, we're talking about legacy, um, I have a very, I have a similar experience, and and it really looking at your book helped draw out some of that. You know, my mom, uh, her first, like her yellow footprints were there at Camp Mateo at the uh, resettlement camp um, as a uh, Vietnam refugee uh, Vietnamese refugee. So, I mean, her first experience to the United States was San Mateo and, you know, looking at your book, um, I think it's on page seven where you have these old images of those resettlement camps. Um, it was really kind of um, sobering for me to see, um, you know, I've, I have pictures of my mom uh, and her family when they were there, but, you know, the it's all very close up and blurry, but to see sort of that you know, 5000 foot view of it, um, and then to have served. um, And then I was with 5th Marines um, going into Afghanistan and stuff. So just that those sorts of legacies uh, in what we talked going into the show. I mean, there's so much more that Camp Pendleton means to America than just this amazing place to serve when you're an active duty Marine or, you know, in uniform, uh, even as a, uh, you know, drilling reservist. Um, you know, there's a lot of American legacy. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of the book? Cause, um, you know, spoiler alert, uh, California wasn't always Americas. <laughs> and so there's a rich Wait, <laughs> um, Mexican history with Camp Pendleton as well.
1: That's right. So thank you. I thought it was really important to provide some contextual history of the base before it became a military installation in 1942. So it just had its 80th anniversary, but the land is about 125,000 square acres along the camp, um, be, along the coast of California, sandwiched in between LA and San Diego. A sprawling base. Uh, It's about 18 miles of open coastline. But before it was a base, it was a working cattle ranch, and um, before that, it was uh, you know home to Native Americans. And so, preserving that history on the base, there's buildings and markers. Like as you mentioned, the Hand of Hope is at the northern part of the base, where the um, refugees from Vietnam had come and they set up a large tent city and really had been a protected place where um, those Vietnamese could uh, integrate and, you know, kind of a safe place before they would be turned to um, sponsors, if you will, into the community. And so Camp Pendleton has just been home to amazing efforts for training. But also, like you mentioned, of a national treasure and a resource just because of the undevelopedness of the space. But as a working cattle ranch and under the hand, changed hands many times, but uh, one claim to fame is that um, the... Last Spanish governor of California, so when California was under the rule of Spain before it was Mexico, Pio Pico was the governor of Alta, California, and he lived on the base or what was then the base in a home called the Ranch House with the head of the working cattle ranch. And so um, it's spaced perfectly between the mission system. So the mission San Luis Rey and the mission San Juan Capistrano is about one horseback ride, uh, one day of a horseback ride, and in between that they, people would stop along the El Camino Real Trail, which was right there in the middle of Camp, what is now Camp Pendleton, and get water for their horses and get some food. And so, um, you know, it was a huge working cattle ranch, but an in integral part of California and Southern California as a place uh, a refuge for people, even before, you know, the, those days. But uh, there's a chapel on the, on the compound of the ranch house, which is preserved by the Marine Corps and is offered up for uh, tours and to really showcase that rich California history before it was a base. But the base has uh, agreed to protect the space and not offer up any development on it, and so it becomes a really fascinating. If you're driving north to south or south to north from LA to San Diego, you'll you'll drive right through the base and you could see at any time. Ospreys flying over, ships at sea, tanks, and well, not tanks anymore, but tracks uh, <laughs> running, uh, running alongside on those routes and uh, Marines on patrol. So you really can get a full what's going on as Interstate 5 goes right through the base.
0: Absolutely. And the, uh, and the, uh, the train tracks for the, uh, the, uh, the coastliner and everything, but it's not only, um, the human history that's protected, uh, at Camp Pendleton, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many times we've had to adjust training for a least turn nesting area or a shutdown, uh, shooting out at the ranges because there's Buffalo and you're just going to have to wait till they leave and they're going to leave on their own time. So, I mean, there's a very, um, there's a, a very, um, there's a conservationist um, sort of ethos uh, at Camp Pendleton, not just of the human history.
1: That's right. In fact, in the 1990s, they signed a pact with the Department of Interior to protect that space and protect the endangered species and the environment there. And so uh, training is impacted from time to time, but they do a really great job of preserving these um, spaces for um, breeding, the least turn and and some, you know, these uh these frogs and and different um, species, and a lot of people have heard the myth of there's a herd of buffalo on the base, roaming around the base, and uh, one day in the 90s when I was on uh, assignment trying to find a range, I came across uh, the herd of buffalo, and so I've seen them with my own eyes, but uh, they were brought to the base in the 70s and have been able to manage to survive and Um, it's a protected place where they just roam freely, wildly on the base. And so we have a team of game wardens and people who are trained to, um, you know, track them and, you know, preserve these species that are on the base. And so it really is a um, kind of an open safari environment with a lot of um, environmental concerns taken into account. So they do a great job of protecting that.
0: Yeah, yeah. The buffaloes. That's a real thing. I, I can't tell you how many of my day shoots turned into night shoots because of those damn buffalo. Um, but also, too, like um, they also are doing a lot to um, sort of uh, galvanize the coral uh, by, you know, setting up a lot of the artificial coral off of there that's been um, eroded due to, you know, all of the various reasons why coral reefs and things are are being eroded. So, yeah, it's really great. Um but I guess going into then looking at the book from a, uh, I guess a stylistic standpoint, like what was sort of, I think we we can get sort of the gist. But I wanted to hear, I guess, in your words, like what your impetus was in writing the book. Um, you obviously speak very passionately about the history and then your your own personal legacy. But why why this book and why this book now?
1: Well, you know, it really just started out as, uh, okay. 20 years had gone by from my experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan as a combat correspondent. And I left the Marine Corps and I switched over to the Navy as a Navy public affairs officer in the reserves and got mobilized and served in Iraq, uh, served two subsequent tours in Afghanistan. But I had tens of thousands of photos. And now what do I do with all of them? And I had... lived on Guam for five years. I was working for Department of Defense, covering all the large scale exercises in Indo-PACOM, came back to Camp Pendleton for a job as a, public affa- a civilian public affairs officer and was driving through base and noticed all these beautiful tributes and monuments through the years that they had, um, you know, been a constant rotation to Iraq or Afghanistan under the okay. first Marine Expeditionary Force. So you've got uh, tens of thousands of troops who've had this experience in Iraq and Afghanistan, and all these different uh, camps on the base—First uh, Marines, Fifth Marines—you know the logistics battalion, um, the squadrons, the aviation—all have had casualties and wanted and have their own memorials. The Recon Battalion, um, the MARSOC—they they've made um, their own camps and unique. To them with memorials and tributes. So as I was driving through the base, I noticed this and taking pictures I wanted to share with Gold Star families or friends, like, look at this, this is meaningful. And so I thought, let me put this together. It just sort of took shape on its own. Let me put all these in uh in a book. And I wanted to get reflections from as you mentioned, uh, some contributors from the base, even the canine section. There's a beautiful tribute to the those working uh, dog handlers who had lost their lives in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I took in a myriad of different um, stories and reflections from people who had served on the base and the forward was written by Lieutenant General Larry Nicholson, who I would served with in Iraq. And when he accepted, I knew that I was onto something special because he had also served at camp Pendleton for many years being the first marine division commander and knew the impact that the base was making so it kind of took its shape and so i thought well if all these other veterans are writing our uh stories and reflections about their time why not me so i put together my photos and more of a coffee table book big big writing big lettering a lot of photos i know marines just kind of it reads more like a magazine than than a book. And so that was my style of of putting together just a compilation of uh, contributions from people and friends of mine that I know and really personal stories and connections that I through my research. I learned that more Marines and sailors from Camp Pendleton were killed in combat in Iraq and Afghanistan than any other one base or station. And so that's a heavy toll on any one community in our country. And so that story just um, had to be told. And so luckily I've gotten a lot of great feedback.
2: Yeah, It's a beautiful book. I mean, really what you said about it being a coffee table book, um, visually it's very stunning, very appealing. Um, once I, you know, I, I flipped the first page, And I was in, so I I think people are really going to enjoy. And I particularly like all the old photos and the the history of the base and the area around there. I think that was, um, that's one of my favorite things to look at. Um, So when you were doing your research, did you find out anything that you didn't expect to find out about the area or about Camp Pendleton? Well, You know, I had been telling
1: the story for many years uh, on and off. Camp Hilton has been my home station. But what I did learn is that, you know, as I mentioned, um, the numbers, the numbers of Marines killed. uh, It just blows my mind from. So actually, um, the book was at the printers, the final approved manuscript was at the printers. As you recall, last August 2021 or in August 2021 when we were doing the evacuation in Afghanistan and within minutes of learning who the Marines and the sailor and the soldier that were killed. Uh, at the Abbey Gate there in at the H the Kar- Karzai International Airport, we learned that those Marines, a majority of the Marines were from Camp Pendleton and within minutes there was a large tribute at the front gate. People started bringing uh, flowers and memorials and balloons and flags, and so I was driving in to work and saw that. And I took photos and I said I have to include this in the book so I pulled it back from the printers made it really the final chapter because in my research some of the very first troops that were killed in Afghanistan and some of the very last were all based at Camp Pendleton and so those were just bookends that had to be told and so if it brings comfort and closure to the families the Gold Star families and the fellow marines that served with these troops to know that just the care that and consideration that goes into the base, which will always remain the same. The Marines will always change out and they come and go um, on the daily. You know, people are there for two years and they they move on or come back after years. And so the book is just sort of a steady uh, look at from start to finish. And so from the very first is what I didn't know is that. Um, there was an aircraft that flew into uh, a side of a mountain, um, a squadron and uh, C-130, I want to say, and killed the crew and they were from Camp Pendleton and those were in the early days. And so um, just tragic. And then of course the final chapter is that those Marines were from first Marines at Camp Pendleton who died at the Abbey Gate. So. Uh knowing all this and putting it together so people can kind of have a chronological sense of what what was going on there uh, was important to me.
2: And did that contribute? I mean, well, obviously, you know, not the, the final situation, but but did that contribute to how you gave the name Heroes Live Here? Um, the title of your book, how did you get that idea?
1: Well, it was just a sense of, oh boy, there is a lot of people that have come through Camp Pendleton, some notable names. Of course, John Bassalone uh, from World War II. So the streets are named with these heroes' names on them. And so just knowing that they were once stationed there. And then through my research, too, I learned that people may remember a movie called Taking Chance Starring yep. Kevin Bacon with a, um, a Marine named Chance Phelps, who was stationed at Camp Pendleton, and that's who that the movie was based on. And then I learned, too, that his father was a Vietnam veteran who actually did the sculpture for um, a bronze statue called No Man Left Behind that depicted... Um, Brad Castle's firefight in Fallujah of that photo, and then they did a bronze statue, but the the sculptor was Chance Phelps's father. And so there's just some, yeah, just some really interesting ties there, and that statue is placed at the front of the wounded warrior complex, and that was stood up as a result of those needing care um, after care after combat for their injuries. And the Wounded Warrior Complex is named after Sergeant Rafael Peralta, who was raised in San Diego, although he wasn't stationed at Camp Pendleton. And so there's just some ties to the local area and some connection points that names people will be familiar with.
0: Yeah. Yeah. One of the things actually Nancy and I were talking about um, before the interview was that, you know, as we had mentioned uh, in the pre-show you know our our tagline is sort of become you know stories matter um uh, and we have you know, explored the narrative um uh, not that they, there's a, an end point to that but we've definitely di- um, you know we've dived into the uh, sort of the prose side of it the journalistic side of it but we've never really done sort of the visual storytelling And I think that the aesthetic of your book, I mean, it really does. I know you said it's sort of like a coffee table book, but it does. The images tell a story. They have a narrative quality to them. Um, And it's it's really stunning to go through it. Uh, And like I said, having been there and just sort of not really fully understanding the impact or just being you know so many alligators close to the canoe you just don't really take the time to sit there and think but now looking back you know I mean just like something as stupid as getting hot wets uh you know at zero five as the sun's coming up you know um it's coming up over the over the Hidalgos, and you're looking out over the pacific ocean I mean the hell gets paid to do this stuff? You know, I mean, it's really amazing. Um, And your book does such a great job of really capturing that uh, that feel of of life at Camp Pendleton. Um, And like going back to, I guess, sort of what Nancy was saying, those older pictures, um, you know, having grown up in the area, I always wonder, like, what did this look like before all of this development and all of this civilization? And you were how how did what was the process like in sort of curating a lot of this stuff? I know you said you had tens of thousands of your own, but did you have to like were you working with history division or was there a a, a sort of a belly button you could push there at Camp Pendleton where you were able to draw all this stuff together?
1: Well, I did actually. I worked with the Camp Pendleton History Department. Um, a woman named Faye Jonasson who I'd worked with with for many years when um she was under the Public Affairs Office. And then I worked through the Camp Pendleton Historical Society as well, and their goal is to preserve the legacy of Camp Pendleton and work to some projects there to um, to really uh, share the history of the base and preserve that. The ranch house complex and some other um, older buildings. And so Camp Pendleton is actually has a lot of new buildings, but that 1st Marine Division, Headquarters building, they call it the White House. It was one of the original structures on the base. And so, trying to find the balance of like, yes, that we would have to modernize because it takes a lot of money to maintain these old buildings, but um, this is legacy. And so, trying to preserve some of that, at finding the balance. But I love all those old photos, but I was very grateful that they um, offered up a, a bunch of those and I chose the ones that I thought depicted the base and could share and give people a sense of what it was like, even though not much has changed, honestly, like you'll drive through the base. Uh, they've done a good job of not building up too much. And so some of those older buildings are still there, but you drive through the camps and the Northern part of the base and some of these older chapels. And that, that was going to be like maybe another book, just the old chapels on base. There's so much history and you can think, who has served here and the tens of thousands of Marines that have gone through Camp Pendleton in their lifetime. And, um, you know, going to the beach and enjoying it with their families. And uh, a lot of people have reached out and said, I was born on the on the base at the Naval Hospital, you know, and kids grew up there. They went to school there and just, you know, it was sort of a soul culture. It's a lifestyle with, the, with uh, that SoCal vibe and, Um, being so close to L.A. and San Diego, so. But it is one of our nation's largest training bases and make no mistake that you know what goes on there is very serious with the home of the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force, 1st Marine Division, and their main focus is war fighting, preparedness, training, and so that's the goal of the base and then trying to coexist with the natural environment and you know preserving the uh, species on the base and the, the history of the buildings. Really important. And so, you know, another catalyst to the book was, um, you know, the, our personal story of uh, Major Megan McClung, which um, I had served with. And she was one of my bosses in Iraq and Afghanistan. And she was killed in Ramadi in 2006. And when we got home from deployment, we had this large rock etched with her name on it. And we put it up on top of this hill where we used to run as a, as a, a section and she was a runner, she was a triathlete and naval academy grad. So we went up to her favorite hill and we put this rock on top of it. Even though we weren't supposed to do that because that it's not a sanctioned um it's not a sanctioned memorial. We didn't tell the base CG on it. We didn't get permission. We just did it. And so these uh, memorials started sprouting up all over the base really these crosses on top of a hill you might have heard about they're controversial. But, um, these memorials need to be sanctioned. But really, that was one of the first catalysts. So, like, I need to go up to the the hill and see Megan's Rock and take some photos and tell that story. And then I started learning about all the other memorials on base,
0: yeah. I'm looking at the uh, at the pages right now, um and you know, it's so um it's it i mean it's really heartfelt um sort of homage to. Uh, to your friend, um, but I also found it really very. Um, uh, I don't know what the words, but um, it, it is very heartwarming because for the most part in this book you are in the backseat and you're allowing Camp Pendleton to really tell the story for itself. Uh, but this was the first time that we really get to see you on the page. Um, and so I, you can tell that that bond that you had uh, with uh, Major McClung, I, I mean, it's, it's obviously a very real thing and it's very it's very heartwarming and it's such a nice um, tribute to uh, not not only to her, but to I guess sort of the the loyalty and friendship and that bond that Marines have with one another. Um, so it's a really it's a really great section of the of the book.
1: Well, thank you. You know, I wanted to add some personal connection uh, to lend a little bit of credibility to say, well, these aren't just other people's stories. I have kind of lived this myself and hopefully people can um, relate to that and everyone has their own stories and their own photos too that I, you know, encourage people to tell a story And general burgers out there right now telling veterans to talk more about their own experience. And so I felt that it tied nicely to my own experience and a lot of the fo- most of the photos in there are mine, except for the historical ones and that I took and got grabbed a few and got permission to use a few from other fellow marines and combat correspondents. And um, really just emphasizing that I want to hear we want to hear from all people's, you know perspectives and um, and the graphics were done by a fellow marine veteran as well who specializes in graphic design. Devil dog design graphics is his name and uh, he served in Iraq too. So um, I had a wonderful layout and design team and an editing team. So I did get help with all the technical aspects. So I was grateful for that. But I really wanted to take the self-publishing route. I never even tried to pitch this to a large publishing house. And so the process was nowadays you can really do your own projects if you want to and so I just didn't feel like a big publishing house would get it I didn't know that the, I didn't think that they would really understand the vibrancy and how important and impactful it could be to the Marine Corps community and then Camp Pendleton specifically so um, I was able to do that on my own and maintain creative control and and really just put the stuff in there that I thought would be impactful. People like yourself know. If you know, you know, right? Um, and so <laughs> um, the surrounding community and the local, um, you know, the tourism board here in Oceanside, they carry the book in their welcome center in the California Welcome Center in Oceanside, and same with San Clemente. And so um, just the Oceanside Library, everyone's been so supportive because they know that it's local history is important and telling those stories of these individual names. People might remember, you know, or hear about like Travis Mannion and uh, Doug Zembeck and uh, you know, just some of those names in the book that people will remember um, just that were so important that we've served with before, have some touch point.
2: You know what, I? um, another section of the book uh, that I really enjoyed different than the photos, which again were absolutely beautiful, were the watercolors by Alex Durr. What oh, yeah. what prompts yes. I I love those. I've been a fan of Alex Durr's work since um, back in the 90s when I worked in naval aviation history because Alex is really well known for his his naval aviation artwork. So, so it was it was a uh, you know a really pleasant surprise to turn a page and see See Alex's work. How did how did that come to be?
1: Oh, thank you so much for reminding me. Of course, Alex. So Alex came out to uh, Fallujah in two thousand six, and he kind of was talking with us in public affairs of like who can, where can I go and get out to. And so um, we worked together then. And then when I was putting this book together, I just remembered his beautiful art and wanted to show a different aspect to to combat operations than just photos. And his work is just tremendous. And so he agreed to, uh, you know, wanna share this experience. And I just love his aspect and um, really showing the how to tell the story in just a different way. And so I was so grateful to partner with him on that and uh, really, People are drawn to his work, and in this book too. Just showing uh, Larry Nicholson there, and then another person he depicted was uh, Julia Carlson um, in in as the shooter in one of those photos. And so those were all people that we were all kind of there together at the same time. And so I just thought it was a perfect chance encounter with working with him for the time that he was in Fallujah, and then reconnecting years later to put to make sure that those were included in the book. Nice, nice,
2: nice.
1: Yeah, he's so talented and you know, his art and the connection with the museum as well and just showing this. And so adding those elements of the watercolors plus the graphics. So Dan Zimmerman did the two page layouts from the um with the general mattis's memo from the iraq uh, and then also from afghanistan using a combination of illustration and photos to make those two page spreads was just really you know such great work and so talented to kind of give people something to linger over and like look at with maps and people's faces and timelines and like the use the use of headlines um really spoke to me and so we worked closely together to come up with that and so it was just really a great partnership the whole effort was just a great partnership with so many people that I've come in contact through those years
2: oh great well I loved it I think it looks amazing so it speaks to me
0: what what kind of response
2: Besides the response from me just now, what other, what how are people responding to it so far?
1: You know, I had the distinct pleasure of um, presenting a book uh, to the Zambiac family, Doug, Zem, Doug Zembiak's parents, um, two weekends ago that they came to Camp Pendleton for the 14th Annual Recon Challenge, where uh, reconnaissance Training Company hosts this enduring, um, grueling course and competition where Marine recon Marines can um, compete really a uh, 25 mile course with swim, live fire exercises. So they came under uh, with the uh, Marine Reconnaissance Foundation as guests of theirs, and I got to meet with them. And so they were just so moved that I would include dug in the book and that just makes me feel so great and you know of course Megan McClung's mother and her brother were just so supportive but the response from even uh, at the commander level they're just blown away and just you know it's something that they can tangibly kind of piece together their own experiences of having either deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan and been a part of these events that take place that are showcased in the book and so just being able to touch people in that way and make sure that they have sort of... I would say it's a yearbook lasting 20 years. It's a 20-year it's a yearbook, but uh, the Marine Corps kind of got away from doing these uh, float books or deployment books now with everything going digital. Yeah, I can tell these stories on the digital platforms and through a website, But going back to something that people can actually touch and flip through really spoke to me. And trust me, I'm not a book person. I barely even read books. But uh, so writing a book really was um, something outside of my comfort zone because I'm more of a radio, audio, TV person that I have always been um, coming up through the Marine Corps. So putting together something in a print format was just a something new for me. So I learned a lot along the way. But if I can write a book, anyone can write a book. And so I get people coming uh, out of the woodwork and veterans who are kind of interested in this opportunity that they might be able to tell their own story. And so I share my experience and encourage anyone who has the means or can or wants to develop it further to kind of take a look at how they would structure a book and do some visioning. And I have some resources for people that also have that same desire to want to tell their stories. Very therapeutic for me, for sure. But that's how I did it. But I I hope that it brings comfort and closure for for some people um, who are touched by the people
2: in the book.
0: And and along those lines, um, as far as like resources towards the end of your, well, actually at the end of your book, you show a lot of these partnerships uh, and organizations and foundations that are there to serve Marines, help Marines, provide for Marines. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about that in particular, uh, your partnership with the uh, Semper Fi Fund um, and some of these organizations that you have um, here in this book?
1: Yes, thank you, Vic, for asking, because that's kind of my one of the most favorite parts of the book is having those resources pages. And so if you know the story of the Semper Fi Fund, uh, Semper Fi and America's Fund for your listeners out there, it was the original nonprofit organization organized around the kitchen table from some marine spouses back in 2003 from right here at Camp Pendleton. And I was a part of Watching them grow and helping tell their story of how they were helping raise money and uh, because I was working and living around Camp Pendleton at those days and um, the Gunther family. I think that was one of the CEOs at the math where I was uh, working for is in public affairs. So it was really a, a team effort and so they just I just had to have them a part of the book, a part of the book with me and asked if they could. I could help sponsor promote and be a part of that and raise money for them and awareness for them but those resources pages in the sea the mass sea of nonprofits supporting veterans you don't know who to trust or who are legitimate and who really are doing great work so each of those listed I think there's 26 listed that I personally have a connection with or that I know people that work there I I can vouch for them so there were personal Nonprofits that go to help um, our our veterans, our active duty, or our um, spouses and families, and so that I just wanted to make sure that they were included in there as a resource guide for service members out there. That can be trusted and that I know them personally. And so I just feel so obligated to help share the good work that they do, and if it can help someone more awareness, then then I'll be then that's wonderful, especially the Semper Five Fund, because they have done so much for so many, and it's just a world class organization just started around. uh, Will uh, willingness and it's desire to help those initial. Uh, Marines coming back from combat or being in a hospital where families couldn't afford to go fly to visit them to be by their bedside and just raising some money. That was really the initial days of the simplify and America's Fund. So that is an amazing story of how it's grown so much and done so much good uh, and expanded beyond the Marine Corps.
2: That is a re- they are a great organization.
1: It's tremendous uh, legacy, and um, just the work can't be understated um, or overstated, really. So it's just really great.
0: Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And then, so, what's um, what's next for you then, Amy?
1: Well, you know, I am want to turn Heroes Live Here into a more of a video project to get people um to, you know, share their stories, take a camera crew on base and do some exploring of those sites because once you get out there and you really see and you go to these historic locations and you get a sense of what it's like, the vastness of Camp Pendleton. So I'd like to put that together and then possibly another book. I've been really thinking about um doing a like a patriotic journal I think that or calendaring a, a journal with some inspiration uh, patriotic inspiration I think people could really um, if they I am a big fan of writing things down uh, in a journal or just having white space to write things down some thoughts and notes or else I forget it uh but also i
2: right there with you <laughs> exactly
1: right so um with that though, you know, some inspiration of, of patriotism. I think that uh, people can, if they just had it written down, some inspirational quotes and different things. So using the book format to put that together. Um, and so in 20, uh, 25, 26 will be the America's 250th anniversary. So if I um, can time it out right, you know that 250th anniversary of our country, Paired with a patriotic journal, that's kind of what I'm shooting for. I know that could be aspirational, but that's what's on my uh, radar for the future is just a passion project. That's neat. That's neat.
2: That is neat.
1: Yeah, and continuing to serve. So luckily my transition from the Marine Corps being an enlisted Marine going to becoming a Navy Reserve uh, Public Affairs Officer has been phenomenal. I have absolutely no regrets about that decision to take. Uh, I served in 18 years in the Marines active and reserve and being mobilized several times to becoming a Navy PAO. I've had tremendous growth and opportunities and new networks. Um, And you know, I still maintain a lot of my Marine networks as well, because once a Marine, always a Marine, I identify mostly as a Marine. Uh, But being able to continue that legacy and, and the work and really with the foundation of being the Marine Corps. And so I'm always sharing with people, Marines, who want to, you know, continue the journey, really. And the Navy is such a great place to do that, or, you know, translating their skills as enlisted into becoming an officer. And so they say, uh, the best navy officers are usually marines um, who were former marines, and so um, doing that and and uh, you know mentoring and coaching uh, in the communications field. I, I just love sharing. You know all the hard lessons I've learned. I've made a thousand mistakes, so people don't have to make my same mistake. But talking about communication and journalism and inspiring people to use their GI Bill like I did, go to get their bachelor's degree and go on and get their master's degree and pursue a job in communications like you did. Vic. I mean, it's just it's so rewarding and fulfilling and working in journalism now has never been easier. I want to say you have more access. You can learn, teach yourself how to edit video or, you know, create content that will inspire the next generation. So really just. Um, showcasing, you know, the ways to do that and then, you know, helping to move the message forward on patriotism and inspiring the next generation to serve because reaching that next generation is, is a lot harder these days. And so if our stories can reach that next generation and someone picks up a Leatherneck magazine and sees someone and said, hey, I want to I want what he has or I want what she's doing. Um, That's really important. It, our national security depends on it really, and that's the communicating like our national security depends on it has always been an imperative for me because we truly are at a critical time where we have to communicate as if our national security depends on it. Our recruiter recruiting efforts our future force depends on it and that we are sharing those stories of courage and legacy and inspirational um ties to what we want to see for the future oh
2: yeah
0: really
2: go (laughs) ahead no i was just gonna say really interesting and it's it's so true what appealed to previous generations in terms of recruiting is most certainly does not appeal to the coming generations, it's you know they're going to have to be um, convinced a different way, and it and, and it's just a different way of looking at. A, it's just a different solution, a different way of looking at telling stories, which is really the key here. Once again, telling telling stories, that's what's going to appeal, and and stories like yours are are really incredible um, and inspiring for young people to hear that you know what you what you are some really important skills that translate across a variety of fields and into civilian life.
1: Yes, thank you Nancy. You know, um, inspiring that next generation is really a calling now. It's my service now is because if you know, I, I barely graduated high school. Like I was an awful student in high school and I just couldn't have imagined, you know, doing anything as great as serving in the Marines. So I was just lucky to be a part of that team and riding that wave post uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. I was just loving every day and it was a challenge for me. I loved it, Um, but you're right. Today's kids need to see and I you know, trying to break that veteran stereotype of being homeless or. Um, not having any skills or directionless uh, you know, Vic and I we we want to break that mold and showcase the best of veterans and that veterans are out there leading and uh doing so many amazing things and um for that next generation to be inspired and say I want to be like that person and I can do that. you can do that too. And so that's uh that's where I'm at. And so I've been, to be invited to go talk to like um, junior ROTC groups and some college students college age and really hit people where they're at that moment of truth where they have to make decisions, hard decisions about what to do with their future. And so I encourage all veterans to share their story and um, inspire that next generation because it's not just a recruiting effort. It's literally a national security. Um, imperative that we get get the word out and, and showcase our story. If I can just connect with one young person to say you can tell stories, be a journalist and serve your country and come out with some great skills and go on to work in TV and media or write a book or movies, you know, and so some of these people that are doing those things are great inspirations for the next generation, but we just gotta remember to do placement, get it placed in the right place where we might reach someone absolutely
0: absolutely yeah. yeah these these kids are more than just quotas right
1: yes and you know in the marine corps unluckily, luckily i'm really i'm really pleased i'm seeing you know just hearing so much so many great things of working i work with marines at camp pendleton and my civilian you know position now and uh they're tremendous I'm so motivated still it's still the same good old Marines trained and uh, motivated. I love seeing that that these young kids are, you know, just like we were. Uh, But that talent management, twenty thirty, you know, just the shift in mindset of how to treat people in the workplace and develop a workforce that will be sustainable. So the commandant has laid out some really great initiatives to make it a sustainable force. Otherwise, we're going to lose lose top talent. You know, top talent is going to attract top talent, but we have to modernize our way of thinking in attracting these people and not moving every three years or, you know, offering some incentives for great work. Uh, So there's just some great things coming ahead. I think that uh, in order for the Marine Corps to survive and attract top talent, we've got to look at modernizing the way we think about. Um, developing that and attracting it. So I'm I'm hopeful because of the kid right now sitting in high school history class as a senior and next year he's going to be reporting to my command. I want to make sure that they are fully motivated and aware of what they're doing, and uh, we're here to inspire them and give them the pathway if that's what's for them.
0: We definitely appreciate your passion for this, uh, you know, and also for your time and being so uh, generous with your time sitting down with us today. Um, Amy, where uh, can our listeners find you? Well, sure. You know, I
1: love to connect with people on LinkedIn. It's sort of my platform of choice. LinkedIn is great. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter if you want to follow me there. I talk about communications, journalism, veterans. Um and travel, I, I really love uh, sharing ideas about travel. I'm, I sit on the board of the Visit Oceanside travel uh, board, so I, I like to connect the dots to help people if they want to travel to Oceanside or California and making Camp Pendleton a stop on their uh, travel tours um, and explore that. Also, heroeslivehere.com is the website if they want to learn more about the book. HeroesLiveHere.com, and you can connect there. You can also buy a copy of the book and I'll s- s- buy it, it buy for me directly from the website and I'll sign it however you'd like or make it out to someone um, special in your life. You can also find the book on Amazon. Um, but i always like to have a connection with people when they buy it straight from me uh, through the website i get to sign the book and that means a lot to some people you know if they served or their rank and i always like to include that but if it comes from amazon it comes straight from the printer i don't always get a chance to touch the book and and add a couple stickers or heroes live here patches i always do that in books that come through orders through the website so i'd love to connect with people there too as well so um, if anyone has any questions or ideas or topics,
0: uh, love to explore that as well. That's great. Well, Maybe we will uh, be sure to put all that stuff in the show description so that folks can reach out to you. Um, the book is "Heroes Live Here." Please check it out. Uh, it is absolutely gorgeous, uh, and it, it's such a great, especially if you uh, served through any of the. Um, Camp Pendleton units or even live in the Camp Pendleton area. Uh, it really is. Uh, I, I highly recommend it. So Amy, thank you so much for your time. Um, enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy beautiful Southern California. I say with a lot of jealousy uh, in my voice. Um, but yes, thank you so much. And let's definitely be in touch. Um, and we're really interested to see like what what's, uh, what's next for you.
1: Well, thank you, Vic and Nancy. You guys, really keep inspiring and telling those stories and just really you know I I mentioned to you that the Leatherneck magazine would come to my grandparents house and that's really my first um visual of for me ending up joining the Marine Corps so you never know where your magazines your podcast your articles are landing with people and that next generation is so important and inspiring and having something for for Marines to read and learn really, a learning opportunity. So uh, I appreciate connecting with you today and uh, look forward to talking with you real soon.
2: Absolutely. Likewise, thanks for thanks for your time today.
1: Oh, thank you guys. Take care.
2: Bye. Bye.
0: Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Truding, but you've also heard the voices or contributions of Vic Rubel, USMC retired, Anthony Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the
1: Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.